Well, last time I was with you, we looked at and studied Hebrews chapter 3, considering how we are called to be faithful, faithful to the end. So I want to continue on into chapter 4, the first 13 verses. So let me read that at this time. Notice it begins with the word, therefore. So following up on chapter 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we treasure your word. It is light and life, and it reveals you and your kingdom, all that Christ has done and all that he has done for us, and all that still awaits us. And I pray that we might be faithful, that we know that we are stewards, stewards of gifts, and that we are on a journey, a journey to the promised land. Lord, let us not perish in the wilderness. Let not one perish. Oh, God, let us guard what has been entrusted to us. And let us even exhort one another as, need, as needs be. Lord, together we are on this journey. And I pray that we might be found faithful. So even now, give us ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember, perhaps, in the closing paragraph of this letter to the Hebrews, this epistle to the Hebrews, the author, whoever that might be, calls it a letter of exhortation, telling us that this letter or this epistle is perhaps maybe actually a sermon in written form. And if that's true, we may wonder, well, perhaps it's an exposition of Psalm 110, from which the author quotes rather liberally in chapters 5 through 7, or perhaps it's an exposition of that new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
which the author quotes in chapters 8 and 10, uh, the purpose there showing that Jesus Christ fulfills those prophecies as he brings in, in his own ministry, the new covenant. Well, personally, I can't be certain that Hebrews is an exposition of any one particular Old Testament text, but this I do know, that the author purposes to show the superiority of Christ to the entire Old Testament administration, and that the Old Testament itself testifies to that very thing. For Moses and all the prophets anticipate the Christ, who will indeed fulfill all the divine promises and bring in the reality that was only foreshadowed by all those Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices. They were never intended to be ultimate, as the Jews mistakenly thought. Christ is ultimate. They were temporary. He is eternal. So it is in this, it is in this exposition of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament that the believer is exhorted, or more specifically, He is exhorted to persevere in his confession of Jesus as the divine Redeemer, as the Lord's anointed. We must cling to Christ because there's simply no hope apart from a persevering, enduring faith in Jesus. See, a past faith that's not also a present faith is a dead faith and a worthless faith. And there's no salvation in that. Many Israelites tragically perished in the wilderness. They didn't enter the promised land. If that's true, or since that's true, I should say, how much more will we who gather in churches in the new covenant, in the name of Jesus, how much more will we perish if we forsake the one name the only name in which, in, 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 who, who, in which there is hope. He who is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. Because it's not Joshua. It wasn't Joshua, but it was another Yeshua. It was Jesus, right? Who leads God's chosen people into the true promised land. It's only in Christ that we enter God's rest. Because Jesus alone has the authority to say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will, what? Give you rest. We know that verse, okay? And we know that this salvation, this rest in Christ, is a present reality. He accomplished it on the cross and in his life. But it's also future. Don't forget that. The author tells us it, it still remains for some to enter. So salvation in Christ has both a present and a future reality. I was blessed to sit under the teaching of Dr. Richard Gaffin, who is now retired from teaching a long, long time at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he wrote, A present place in the eschatological house is contingent on persevering into the future. Does that get you nervous? Because that sounds a bit like saying entrance into God's rest is conditional. 
Well, it is. It actually is. Follow me carefully and look at the words we looked at last time, back in chapter 3, verse 6, the second part. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And verse 14, or verse, um, yeah, 14, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What's the author saying? He's saying that assurance of salvation comes not from having a one-time profession of faith, not walking forward at some big event or something like that. No, it involves having a faith today, a faith that endures into every today, as long as you have life, as long as you have breath, as long as you live. There are so many exhortations in the Bible. I could give you just one from John, 2 John. Watch your th- yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. In other words, in the end. This is what the author here has been saying. He's saying many of the Israelites started well. They followed Moses. They, they were led out of Egypt. They crossed the river. They started well. They heard but they did not have a true faith that endured to the end. He says they rebelled. They were disobedient. Verse 19 of chapter 3, so we see that they were unable to enter the promised land, that is, because of unbelief. And we've seen that the church today is like Israel in the wilderness. We also, you see, are a sojourning people. We have left our past slavery, our land of slavery, our city of destruction, to use Bunyan's uh, metaphor. We have uh, passed through the river. We have been united to Christ, baptized into Christ, and we are a sojourning people seeking the promised land. That is, the author will say later on, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We are seeking to enter God's rest. That is our pursuit. That is our journey. This world is not our home. We are on a journey. We are seeking our eternal home. And so what the author is doing in this word of exhortation is negatively warning the church, warning Christians against apostasy. And positively exhorting believers to live in this world with a persevering faith, clinging to Christ. Notice the author's argument in verse 6 and following. I notice specifically that in verse 6, he says, since this, this argument, which is plain from prophecy, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, okay, that leads to his exhortation of verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The author's argument that we must have a persevering, enduring faith that believes today, every day, as long as it is today, and clings to that promise of future rest. And the fact that he repeats the warning from Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, indicates that his readers, yes, including us, need that warning as much as Israel did back in David's day. Because 
the promise of entering God's rest stands. And the truth is not all who begin the journey complete it. Not all who begin the journey complete it. The news hit the media of some form about, what, four, six, eight weeks ago of a certain Joshua Harris who was very influential a long time ago in his book, what was it called? Something about a kiss dating goodbye or something like that. And we with homeschooling kids, were, we read that and devoured it and thought about it and some of his other books. And yet he announced just several weeks ago that he's no longer a Christian and he's divorcing his wife. Tragically, so many others have abandoned the journey. So many others have started out well. We talked about that last time. They started well, but they quit along the way, and they perished in the wilderness. So, dear ones, you and I must strive, the author says, strive to enter that rest, that future eschatological rest, because the land of Canaan was not, of course, the substance of the promise. It was only an image or a symbol of the inheritance promised to God by His people, or promised by God to His people, to us who are the true Israel of God. Notice verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, and Joshua did bring them into the promised land, but the author is saying, wait a minute, don't get confused. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The other day, the another day is the future, final, full, true realization of the promise. And that is our motivation to persevere. You don't want to come up short through unbelief, as so many in Israel did. Cling to God's promise of hope because the promise of entering his rest still stands. He says plainly, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's an interesting word, this Sabbath rest. It occurs only here in the entire New Testament. It's maybe a, a word that he perhaps coined. There is a future Sabbath resting for God's people. So when he uses that term, he means for us to think of the biblical account of creation, where God, which describes, of course, God resting on the seventh day from all his works. You remember that. In fact, he speaks about that in verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, you remember, of course, that uh, God made all things of nothing, to, to use the catechism word by the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. And on the seventh day, he rested and he sanctified, or he set apart, he declared holy the seventh day. So the seventh day was to be distinct from the other six, okay? They were to labor for six days and rest on the seventh day. But, and you may have heard me say this before, it's interesting to note that in the description of the seventh day, it's different than the previous six days. I'm thinking of the formula, and there was evening, and it was morning, 
the first day, the second day, the third day, and so forth. That does not, it, it's not present in regard to the record of the seventh day. And so the reader might get the impression that the seventh day never ends. It's not bound or restricted by time. And I think that's exactly right. In our modern days, we too often get maybe distracted. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it is a distraction where we think only about the length of the creation days and all those arguments. I'm not going to touch upon those. But note that the creation account is primarily theological. God's rest was eternal. God's rest was the reward, if you will, if we can speak figuratively here, for his labor. God made creation and then he rested. And that rest was his exaltation. He, he sits now as king, as the exalted ruler over that which he made. His rest was not in activity. And Jesus said, My father's working until now. His rest was not in activity. And we know that Jesus worked on the Sabbath. We know that he was condemned by the Pharisees for working, supposedly, and supposedly breaking God's law on the Sabbath. But what did he do on the Sabbath? Where he seems to go out of his way to do a certain something on the Sabbath day, which is what? To heal people. Why? Because the Sabbath symbolizes health and wholeness. Sabbath rest is not physical rest. There's nothing wrong with taking a nap on Sunday. But that's not primarily what it's about. It's not primarily about just going home and doing nothing. People get confused about that. It's about spiritual resting in Christ. It signifies the final reward we will receive in Christ because of Christ. Gerhardus Voss, another one of my relatively modern times, theological heroes, if you will, or church heroes. He wrote that the Sabbath is an expression of the eschatological principle on which the life of humanity has been constructed. Now, maybe that sounds a little bit complicated for some of you, but, um, you know, we think of Sunday, we sometimes call it the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. We think of it as looking back to Christ, and we will have the table here. We, we will have it coming? Okay. <laughs> Just notice that. <laughs> we will have the table here a little bit later on, and we think about it looking back to Christ on Sunday, and that's true. We do that, okay? But we also look forward to the final consummation of our salvation, because there is this finality, this this uh, finale still to come. This reward that God has for us in Christ. Now, remember the order. It gets a little bit complicated here, so kind of buckle your seatbelts and and hang in there. Hope you had enough coffee this morning, okay? But this is important theology. Remember the order of the creation days. God labored for six days and he rested on the seventh day. His rest being his reward or his satisfaction, his joy in what he just accomplished over the previous six days. Okay? And this was his commencement as 
King of kings and Lord of lords over all creation. He is king over what he just made. And so he commanded his people, Adam and Eve, to labor faithfully, meaning they were to labor as priests and kings under him, exercising dominion over that creation faithfully, without sin, obeying every command. And if they did that, they would enter his rest. They would receive the reward God promised, signified by the tree of life in the garden, in the midst of the garden. If they did not, they would perish. In other words, the creation week was eschatologically designed to show that eternal rest follows faithful labor. You got that? The covenant of works. Eternal labor follows, eternal rest follows faithful labor. In our shorter catechism, we read, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience. The reward would follow perfect obedience. And again, Voss said, the so-called covenant of works was nothing but an embodiment of the Sabbath principle. Again, revealing that rest follows faithful labor. Well, what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, right? And in their sin, Adam brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery rather than into that state of eternal reward and blessing. But the catechisms ask, did God leave all mankind? This is why the catechism is really greatly important. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer is, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And so therefore the Sabbath took on a redemptive significance as rest or reward or eternal salvation could be gained only for us by another. No longer by our works, but by the works of another, by Jesus, by the Christ. So it's no longer a matter of human works or effort as it once was, but solely of God's grace, because our righteousness even is as filthy rags. And so the Sabbath was never primarily about which day do we get off? Which day can we you know, take off and no longer work and get some rest? The Sabbath from the very beginning had theological meaning. Now, remember that the Sabbath is in the Old Testament, was one of those laws that was brutally enforced. It required strict cessation from work. And if you did not obey that law, you died. Why? To teach the gospel. Because Sabbath resting from one's work signified the complete abandonment of a work's righteousness in favor of receiving that reward through faith. That's why 
the punishment for Sabbath breaking, death. That was a theology lesson to teach them that if you trust in your works, you will die. You must rest, you must abandon your works righteousness and trust in God's gift alone. And that connection can be found in Deuteronomy 5, which is the second time in the Old Testament the Ten Commandments is given to us. The first time is in Exodus 20, right there when they were on Mount Sinai. The second time is in this great sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy, and it's in chapter 5. And it's interesting, it's a little bit different. All the, all the commandments are the same there, except for this one, the fourth commandment. And there Moses writes, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, this is the same thing, okay? You should not do any work and so on and so forth. Then he goes on and says, You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, notice, because of God's deliverance of you from Egypt, from your land of slavery, from your bondage, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So you see what's going on there? God's deliverance of His people graciously, powerfully, by His own strong arm, and bringing them into the promised land, well, that was the, the clearest expression in the Old Testament of divine salvation. And the Lord specifically uh, commands them to keep the Sabbath in remembrance of that. So in Old Testament theology, the Sabbath, again, think about, we're back in the Old Testament. Think about being Jews back then, okay? The Sabbath pointed the people both to the future coming of the Messiah as well as to the final ultimate rest because the Sabbath was the seventh day, right? But now because Jesus has come, the Sabbath has been altered somewhat with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. He said on the cross, to die, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is all done, okay? God's people enter now into the reality of what he calls my rest, rest that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices, okay? And so the Old Testament Sabbath is now the Lord's Day, we sometimes call it, the first day of the week, because the first day is a remembrance of and a celebration of Christ's victory over sin in His resurrection, for He rose on the first day. So God's people gather every first day to celebrate the life we currently have through the, through the death and resurrection of Christ on the first day as He broke the, the reign of Satan and gave us new life. But we also look forward to the eternal Sabbath yet to come. Because right now, we sometimes talk about this already and not yet. We already, if you have faith, possess the riches of eternal life. But there is something greater still to come, the eternal Sabbath toward which we press on. And so the author states, there remains this Sabbath rest. 
So when we gather together on the first day, and we do that deliberately, not the second day or the sixth day or the fourth day, but the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection, okay, the Sabbath day or the Christian Sabbath, we testify that we are now in Christ, God's people, delivered from our Egypt. And therefore, we are sojourners seeking a better country. We seek a heavenly one. But our author, our inspired author, is clear that only those who persevere to the end will come into that rest. All the unbelieving will not enter it. And that includes those who seem to be believing for months, years, decades. Maybe those who pastor churches, those who are elders, those who are teachers, those who are missionaries. It matters not who you are. If you stop believing while you are alive, you will perish eternally. Okay? We must endure to the end because a mere profession of faith doesn't save. A past faith doesn't save. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. True faith saves, or Christ saves through true faith. And true faith perseveres, looking to the reward, which is eternal rest. Revelation 14, 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. See, what God did through Joshua as this, as this, you know, as this foreshadowing, this type, okay, showed that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. He brought Israel into the promised land. But that's not the ultimate rest, not the ultimate land to which he's taking his people. But it proves the point. And so Joshua 21, verse 43 and following So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And notice, and the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their land, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Everything God had promised, He brought to pass everything. Not one promise failed. The Lord gave them rest as He promised. But again, just this typical rest. So that which God has promised and not yet brought to pass shall certainly also come to pass. In other words, God shall bring about the heavenly final realization of the promise just as certainly as He brought about that earthly realization. Just as He brought Israel into the physical earthly land of Canaan, so shall He bring the church someday into the eternal spiritual land of Canaan. So how should you and I live How should we live? Well, it's clear. Remember, this chapter started with this therefore. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands. This was written many years ago. But beloved, Jesus has not returned. 
And so the promise still stands on whatever day today is. September or something or other, 2019. The promise still stands. It's there. God has spoken it. While it still stands, be faithful with fear and faith. Behold Christ, because in Him all of God's promises are yes and amen. And we must therefore strive to enter that rest that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. The idea there, the author is to be earnest, to, to focus one's energy, to be determined to fulfill that goal, to achieve that goal. And so all that we do, our entire, not just Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, do it all, the apostle said. Do everything to the glory of God. He said to the Colossians, Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord, and not for men. Whether you're working in employment, whether you're cutting your grass or washing your dishes or taking care of your kids, or whatever you're doing, work not for a human reward, but for the Lord. And Paul says, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your Rewards. So notice you're laboring today, and all that you do has that future focus on your reward, your inheritance, which God promised in Christ. And yet, by observation, many Christians lack this very focus, this enduring faithfulness to Christ. Is Christ absolutely preeminent in your thinking, in your choices? When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up to serve Christ in whatever you do that day? Washing the dishes to the glory of God. Taking care of your kids, doing your job. Whatever it is, do you wake up with this focus on being faithful to Christ in your thinking, in your decisions, in your choices, in your goals? Many Christians are, again, by observation, appear not to be heavenly-minded. Oh, there's that old saying, they're so heavenly-minded, no, no earthly good. You can, only be, you can only produce earthly good if you're heavenly-minded. It's exactly wrong. We need to focus on the unseen. But often people, like, I mean, Christians, like us, we have the same purposes, same goals, same desires as the non-Christians, which is to build our earthly kingdoms, to gather for ourselves and to exalt ourselves. We seek comfort and safety just as much as the so-called Gentiles do. Could it be that at times we're more like Israel who sought after other gods than like Paul who pressed toward the goal Paul was single-minded. He had steadfast devotion to the Lord. He disciplined himself. He disciplined himself that he would not lose his reward after preaching to others. And I, I don't know if I can speak for anybody but me, but scares preachers to think that you preach the Word and that you yourself might lose your reward because you are unfaithful. Teachers are judged more strictly. 
But see, if this world is your first love, if this world is your treasure, and you pursue it with your decisions and your choices and your goals, then you may become like Demas, who was one of those who walked away and perished in the wilderness. But if heaven is your first love, if Christ is your first love, you will seek him with all your heart and strength. And you'll want to honor him with every decision and choice you make. That's what his people do. You know, later on in this book, the author will speak about all these men and women of faith in chapter 11. We sometimes call it the hall of faith. Right? You're familiar with that. But that chapter is not just history or even biography. It's an exhortation, as chapter 12 makes clear. It's an exhortation to those of us who are alive and who read it that we also must live by faith as they did, that we also are strangers and exiles. This is not our home. We're just a passing through. And if you do that, then you also will receive the reward of faith. But if you go astray in your heart and you wander off, you will not enter God's rest because of unbelief. That's not my opinion. That's the Word of God. So there remains a Sabbath resting for the people of God. And Jesus will bring His people into it. Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. Strive to enter that rest. Focus your life on that future rest, that inheritance. Because as the last couple of, chap- last couple of verses, God knows what's going in your heart. He's, he sees the secrets. The Word of God exposes your motives and your loves. There's no deceiving God. And so, beloved, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Oh, Lord God, we've heard story after story of people once believing, once following you, starting well, maybe even preachers and teachers who perish along the way. May there not be true of one here among us, Lord God, because you hold us fast. Let us have that persevering, enduring faith, clinging to Christ and fixed on the promise which is ours, that we will indeed someday be brought into that eternal rest, that eternal Canaan, that perfect and eternal promised land. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.